1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
2: Throughout the war in Ukraine, there have been a notable number of attacks from the sky. But rather than being launched from planes, a lot of bombs have been dropped from drones. In the past week, drones flew close to the roof of the Kremlin in Moscow, there were explosions at Russian energy facilities, and attempted retaliation attacks on Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. Around a decade ago, when drones began to be used more frequently by armies around the world, these remote-controlled weapons promised to transform the way that wars were fought. As more of these unmanned vehicles take to the skies, many of them engineered by civilians in Ukrainian workshops, how are they changing warfare? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, I'm Alop Jha, The Economist, Science and Technology Editor. Today we'll explore how drones are being used in the war in Ukraine. And we'll look at their potential for conflicts around the world. We also visit Kyiv to see firsthand how engineers are working in underground unassuming workshops to upgrade consumer drones and turn them into military machines.
0: What what is this?
3: Uh, This is… (laughs) It is bomb. (laughs) for damaging machines.
2: First, to understand how drones are being used in the war in Ukraine, I'm with Oliver Carroll. Oli is our Ukraine correspondent and he's based in Kyiv. Thanks for joining me, Oli. Always a pleasure. So we've been hearing a lot about Ukrainian drone strikes on Russian territory recently. Can you just give us a sense of what's been happening?
4: So, obviously, the most high-profile attack was on the Kremlin at the beginning of May. Now,
3: Russia claims Ukraine was targeting Putin in this drone attack on the uh, Kremlin on Wednesday, following orders from the US. Both Kyiv and Washington have denied any
4: involvement. But Ukraine has been building up to this moment since the beginning of the year. Back in the winter, they identified a major disadvantage they had, which was in long-range missile strikes. That's to say... Russia can lob in missiles deep into Ukraine without worrying that Ukraine might be able to do the same. And so Ukraine had been hoping that the West might help them bridge the gap, but the West has been reluctant to send those missiles for fear of escalation, and those fears are debated. That basically forms the backdrop to Ukraine's idea of making its own drone programme.
2: You've mentioned the possible attack on the Kremlin, but are there other kinds of places that are also being attacked?
4: So... At the beginning of the year, Ukraine started to feel a lot more confident about its ability, and you started to see a number of different targets deep inside Russia being hit, from Black Sea Fleet in Crimea.
2: Russia's Black Sea Fleet came under a massive drone attack in Sevastopol.
4: To fuel tanks in southern Russia, in northern Russia, in Moscow. A fire erupted at a fuel depot in the Crimean port city Saturday,
1: the Moscow-installed governor blamed two enemy drone strikes.
4: To aerodromes thousands of kilometres away from Ukraine, even ministries inside Moscow appeared to have been hit. But that The news about that was apparently hushed up. So some of these drones were, were getting through. And it does seem that a Ukrainian drone hit the Kremlin because the alternative explanations don't make an awful lot of sense. The false flag explanation doesn't really tally with the idea of a strong security state russia would not like to, to appear weak to be susceptible to these, these kind of attacks from its poor brother in ukraine and there was no organized reaction I understand there are two or three drones in the Ukrainian arsenal which would have been capable to get through to Moscow. Nothing particularly complicated in them. It's a matter of having a a petrol engine, uh, being able to get through electronic warfare measures. That's the complicated bit. But that it's possible in principle is clear. Obviously, we haven't had an official confirmation and we're unlikely to have one.
2: Now, on the other side of this, how has Russia been attacking Ukraine with drones as well?
4: Well today has been the first quiet night in a week ever since the the attack on the uh, the Kremlin. Russia launched a series of air raids on Kyiv overnight in apparent uh, retaliation, but authorities say all the
3: strikes were intercepted by air defenses. Strikes also in Zaporizhia and Odessa.
4: And they're hitting In the middle of the night, you're being woken up with these huge bangs at sort of four o'clock in the morning, which serves a military purpose because that's the time when Russia understands that soldiers are likely to be the most tired, when visibility is still a problem, and so on and so forth. The drone attacks have been happening since the autumn, when they've essentially been used as a very cheap alternative to expensive missiles which are running out, targeting infrastructure, targeting also military bases and so on. But the main idea is to wear out Ukraine's defences in a comparatively very cheap way.
2: Okay, well, thanks, Holly. We'll speak to you again a bit later on. With drones in the news so much at the moment, I wanted to explore their underlying technology.
1: Usually the term drone refers to aerial systems, although there are underwater drones or surface vessel drones. Other than that, there's only... Very few things you can really generalise about drones because drones really range from very small systems that can take off the palm of your hand to systems that are basically as big as as commercial airliners, so have wingspans of 20 metres, 30 metres and more.
2: Ulrike Franke is a senior fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, a European think tank. She investigates the way that new technologies affect how wars are fought.
1: They carry a payload. This is really important. So drones are basically taxis for payloads. And payloads can be anything and everything you can put under a drone. Almost always it is some kind of surveillance equipment, you know, video cameras, photo cameras, or anything like that. But other than that, in the military realm, it can be armament, bombs, missiles, But it can also be be special equipment for electronic warfare or to collect other data. Or, you know, a tank with fertilizer to spray crops, because drones are also now very much used in the civilian realm. So it really is, there's a full range of drones, a full range of uh, possible uses inside and outside the military realm.
2: Well, let's focus on the military realm. Uh, What do military drones typically do?
1: So the most important thing that military drones have been doing over the last few years and decades, I'd say the modern drone came about around the year 2000, but honestly, there have been drones, you know, way before in the Vietnam War and, and before that. But the most important things drones have been doing is ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. So what drones allowed you to do is to have an eye in the sky at a very low cost and relatively easily and for a long time, right? And this is something that manned systems just can't provide in the same extent. So we now have a situation that in many military conflicts, you have 24 seven surveillance, right? There's always a drone or many drones really in the sky looking down and gathering intelligence. Related to that is strike capability. Either the drone finds and designates a target uh, and then this target is attacked by other means, say artillery or man fighter, if you want, or anything else. Or the drone is, itself is armed, and so it can attack a target by itself. And that can be a moving target, vehicles, people, uh, or it can be a stationary target. And then maybe a third one is the propaganda element. Um, and this is something we're seeing not just now in Ukraine. We've seen this in in the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh, for example, or in the Iraq war. Drones, you know, whenever you do an operation with a drone, you basically have a TV camera or a TV team with you at all times. Everything is being recorded. And you can use these recordings for clips that you can post on social media to show, I mean, for example, how good you are militarily speaking. People may have seen videos, for example, of Ukrainian drones dropping grenades right into the hatch, the open hatch of Russian tanks. That, of course, shows you know, military capability or you can, you know, use it for other propaganda purposes.
2: Has drone technology affected the way that modern wars are fought? And specifically in Ukraine, is there something about this war that has made the use of drones different to before?
1: So I'd say there is an impact. I'm always careful to not overemphasize this because especially at the beginning where people were looking at drone warfare, so let's say the kind of late 2000s, early 2010s, there was this narrative that drones would completely revolutionize warfare and it would all be different. And I don't think we should go that far. Nevertheless, yes, there has been an impact. For example, given the fact that now you need to be prepared to be seen from the sky at all times, that means you A, need to hide much better, And also it means that forces are much less likely to mass troops or equipment or anything of high value together because you don't want to offer a target to a drone. And this is true even behind front lines, right? Other than that, I mean, drones have impacted, uh, for example, also very much the, the experience of war by individual soldiers. So you have the kind of rather unique situation where drone operators can be very far away from the battlefields, even in other countries, on other continents, while they are still very much involved in the fighting. This was mainly the situation, for example, U.S. drone operators that were sitting in in Nevada and literally fighting wars in Afghanistan or Iraq or, or elsewhere. But you also now have the situation that on the battlefield, many, many soldiers now have, well, either their own drones, kind of almost personal drones, or they can link into the feeds of drones that are in the sky. And that just means that you know individual soldiers at low hierarchical levels now have a much better view of the battlefield so called battle space awareness this is something that say 20 years ago only high level commanders would have that had access to information intelligence gathered by manned aircraft that need to be developed and all of this like they were the only ones having this view and this really has changed the way that yeah individual soldiers experience warfare
2: can we just talk a bit about how drones work? So, you know, how are they controlled, how they fly, how do they store weapons and so on?
1: Unfortunately, the answer is quite a bit of it depends because there really are many different systems. So if we take the smallest system, you know, some are called nano drones, mini drones. Um, If you go a little bit bigger, it's, it's tactical drones. So we are thinking of Some of them may be quadcopters, so the type of things that you and I can also just buy as a civilian system. Often these are fixed wing systems can be just put in the sky by being either thrown in the sky, really, or they take off with with rotors, or they're being put up in the sky by by bungee or ramp or something like that. These smaller systems most of the time are piloted by individual soldiers. Often it's, it's literally just one person. They have some kind of control unit can resemble a PlayStation unit, um, can indeed be an iPad if it is a drone that was primarily or initially civilian. And they can see what the drone sees normally. The the image is being streamed down. So there's a downlink and an uplink. And with the uplink, the soldier can tell the drone where to go, either just by saying, okay, go right, go left, or by giving it a a GPS waypoint or, or whatever. And then, yeah, if this drone is armed, smaller systems tend not to be armed, but they do, of course, exist. Then the operator on the ground can also say, OK, I've seen this target and now you can engage it. In an ideal situation, by the way, all the information that this drone and this drone operator gathers would also be linked in in the larger command chain. And this is something that's really important because, you know, individual military systems, they, they work best if they are integrated with other systems and they can then take it from there.
2: Okay, so that's how the smaller drones work. What about the bigger ones?
1: Bigger drones. So, for example, we're moving into the, the mail and hail area. So these are medium altitude long endurance or high altitude long endurance. So systems that can be quite big and fly quite high, so thousands of kilometers. And again, wingspan of maybe up to 30 meters. They are usually controlled by crews. Three people is quite typical, but it can be much more. So you would have a pilot, you would have a payload operator, so someone who turns the camera and, and possibly decides whether or not to fire. This can also be an, another person. You often have data analysts, so people who really look at the data, for example, the videos and analyze it. And then often you have a whole crew behind this that can help with all kinds of things. And these people then would sit in ground control stations. It's often just containers um, somewhere on an airfield, uh, in a military base. And the nice thing here is that you can rotate the crew while the drone is still in the sky and thereby guarantee a continuous operation.
2: Can we talk about the limitations then of military drones? I mean, though they're more common and out there, obviously your enemy also knows that they're there. So are they? simple or relatively easy to shoot down? Or what kinds of technologies can be used to combat them?
1: This is such an important question. And I always say it's easy and difficult at the same time to shoot down a drone. So easy because these are generally slow-moving targets. They aren't hidden. I mean, there are very few stealth drones. They aren't able to defend themselves. There are very few developments now that where, where drones are able to yeah, shoot back uh, at at anything uh, really. or, or do
2: evasive maneuvers or anything exactly
1: like that. exactly so they are slow i mean many of those are really quite unsophisticated uh, uh, systems that that are hovering in the sky often you can literally shoot them down with yeah a shotgun if they're smaller systems i mean eagles have been trained to take down drones of course smaller drones other aerial defenses can shoot down drones so it should it should be relatively easy the reason why it often isn't is that while drones can from anywhere, really. So you would need to have aerial defense pretty much uh, everywhere because they can be small, because they can fly slowly, because of all of this, you need special detection mechanisms, right? So your systems that are built to detect fighter jets may not work for, for drones. So you need to have systems that can detect them. Then you need to down them in a way that is safe. So you may want to look into electronic warfare, for example, by jamming the signal between the drone and the operator. But that only works if there is a signal between a drone and the operator. And the more autonomous drones become, the less this may be the case. So jamming may be out. Um, Hacking drones is an option. There are now nets uh, being used against drones. So there's a whole range of anti-drone systems that are being built. Many of them are very capable. It's just that in order to combat a drone, you need to know it's there, And you need to have the right system at the right time. And this is tricky given the range of drones that there is there. So this is why, while we still hear about drones coming through and, and not being detected or not being intercepted by even quite sophisticated aerial defense.
2: Could you tell me a bit about how civilian drones are being repurposed or adapted for use in the military? We've heard a lot of stories, uh, again, from the war in Ukraine about civilian drones being used. um, And I'm sure they've been used before, but what's the sort of history there and, and how easy is it to do?
1: I would say that this story about civilian drones being repurposed for military operations is one of the biggest things we need to talk about with regard to the war in Ukraine. Now, of course, this has been done before, but we are really seeing this a lot in Ukraine. So you have civilian drones as a an, as an hobbyist drone. So drones you and I can just buy to shoot cool movies. And they are being used as they are for surveillance and reconnaissance, as I was saying. Or they are being reworked and repurposed, for example, by arming them or putting other payloads under it. You also have a lot of commercial drones. So, for example, drones that were built for the agricultural space and then aren't being repurposed. And we really see this a lot.
2: Can I just say before before you go on, just to, just to be clear, the difference between what's typically classed as a military drone and a civilian drone, just describe for listeners what, what that is. Is it size? Is it something to do with the electronics inside? What is it?
1: In a way, the only difference is that one drone was p- purposely built for the military and the other one wasn't. Military systems would be built to be more robust. They would be built... For example, to be more secure, speaking from a a cyber point of view or a jamming point of view, like commercial systems aren't being built with an enemy in mind that may try to to sabotage it. But you are pointing out exactly the right thing, namely that there is no real difference in terms of the the actual drone capabilities um, between a military and a civilian drone. I mean, of course, civilian drones aren't armed, but you can change this. And, And this is the thing. So drones for years, decades, if not centuries, were an exclusively military capability, right? The only people that were looking into drones were the military. And then around the year 2000, drones really, really took off, militarily speaking. More and more countries looked into it. In the 2010s, they were used quite extensively by many military actors. And this was the moment where also the civilian realm started to look into this, mainly because it was really easy to to build a drone, first of all, but most importantly, the kind of sensors sensors became much cheaper, became much smaller. And I very vividly remember when I was starting to look into this in kind of the late 2000s, early 2010s, I had this Google alert on just drone, right? And I got this summary of of things happening in the drone world via email. And after a few years, I had to change the Google alert to military drone, because all of a sudden, I got so many emails on drones being used in real estate, filming, uh, drones being used for wedding videos, drones being used for pipeline inspection, all kinds of things. So the civilian drone realm really, really took off. And now what we're seeing is, you know, the development coming full circle and the civilian drones re-entering the military space and being used there. And so that's quite an interesting development that we're we're currently seeing here.
2: Well, thank you very much for your time, Eureka. My pleasure. Next, we'll look at how civilian drones are being transformed into military tools in Ukraine. Before that, though, we'd like your help. Here at Babbage, we're always trying to improve what we do. So whether you're a loyal fan or a new listener, we'd love to hear what you think of the show. Please take a few minutes to fill out our new listener survey. Head to economist.com slash Babbage survey. That's all one word. The link is in the show notes. Now, let's dig deeper into how civilian drones are being used in the war effort in Ukraine, as Ulrika mentioned earlier. Benjamin Sutherland, who reports on technology and security for The Economist, has just returned from Kiev, and he's with me now. Ben, hi, how are you doing? How are you doing? Good, thank you, Ben. Now, you've just finished a big piece for the print edition of The Economist on drone modification, and you've been recording some audio for us uh, for the show Tell me about the network of DIY engineers that you went to see. Um, Who are they and what are they up to?
0: I was stunned to get a feel for the scope of this network of clandestine workshops. I mean, it's certainly scores and probably hundreds of them, many in garages, in flats, bedrooms, kitchens, mechanics, workshops, and even in factories where certain areas have been set aside for this kind of work to take place. And uh, these are volunteers. They're civilians who want to play a role in protecting their country. A lot of them have day jobs. Some of them have quit their day jobs and are pouring their energy into this full time. Printing parts, using laser cutters to make parts, soldering electronics, taking components purchased or sent in from abroad and using them to kind of swap out components on commercial drones to make them adapted for military use or just to improve their performance. We are driving through kind of a rundown uh, industrial suburb outside of Kiev with a mixture of industrial buildings, homes, a few businesses here and there, a lot of unfinished construction.
2: So tell me about the people you met.
0: One of the first people I met is a young man by the name of Swat. Uh,
3: 24 uh, February February started the war. And 27, my friend uh, called me and said, we need uh, your help. Uh, We know that you have a 3D printer. And we need more parts for our military uh, machines, uh, some bombs. We, We need your printing. Okay, fantastic.
0: Shortly after the full invasion began early last year, he started recruiting people who have three d printers, mostly in Ukraine, but a few people abroad and and now he's got a network of about three hundred and thirty workshops with three d printers making parts and in fact he's got uh, a document system where he 's keeping track of the parts that are requested by commanders on the front line
3: no, not only commanders but one soldiers we can uh, yeah. phone him. what do you need? What do you want? I have many contacts of soldiers uh, we have meeting we have feedback from mm. soldiers
0: in fact, his name, SWAT, is Ukrainian for go between so. He's kind of a crucial figure in this project.
2: So what is SWAT doing with these 3D printers? You mentioned he's printing parts, but what kinds of things is he making?
0: Well, a lot of the parts are essentially bomb-dropping mechanisms, which was kind of a crucial innovation that took place some time ago. People had to figure out how do you turn a hobbyist drone into something that can carry something and drop it, and, and the solution was to print a sort of 3D clamp that uses a, a photosensitive detector, which is placed underneath drone. a light on the bottom of the drone.
3: Turn on light. Yeah. Yeah. Turn on light, and uh, this is... Uh, Unbelievable. And... Uh, very the,
0: the, the light makes it work, yeah, the light turns it on. When they yes. turn on the light, it's a light-sensitive photoreceptor in there.
3: Yes, it was uh, turned on on drone, and this is uh, all. And that's what, and yes. that
0: there's a little motor, a tiny motor in here. Yes. And the idea and is that, that the operator on. turns the light on from the remote control console that activates the light receptor, opens the clamp and uh, the grenade drops out. So those devices are uh, widely produced.
2: Are they also producing weapons of any kind?
0: They actually are. Now that's a controversial aspect of it.
3: What, what is this? Uh, this is um, uh, a <laughs> <It's> bomb. <bump. laughs> yeah, uh, for damaging
0: machines. Some of the Ordinance that they're using has been collected on the ground, or they call it trophy ordinance, or captured from retreating Russian forces, that kind of thing. Some of the Ukrainian officials I spoke with don't like that. One official said that it's kind of borderline criminal to have people collecting this ammunition and doing stuff with it. In most cases, the munitions are provided by the commanders, and uh, the arming of the drones takes place at the front, in the trenches, that kind of a thing. But... One of the things that a lot of the workshops are turning out are essentially 3D-printed casings that are filled with BBs or ball bearings in order to increase the amount of shrapnel. Uh,
3: we need uh, that uh, this bomb damage people around yes. More people. More yes. people. In these cases, uh, more Steel metal, balls. Me- metal balls.
0: It okay. fits around a grenade, and when it detonates, it dramatically increases the amount of shrapnel that it sends out. And in fact, one of the more successful designs that SWAT showed me was essentially a a pretty big casing that fits around an anti-tank mine. Okay, so this is an anti-vehicle or an anti-tank mine. Yes. And you are modifying it for anti-personnel use. Yes. By creating a plastic casing. Yes. Which is filled with metal balls. Yes, and that's to create more shrapnel. But how is it deployed? Where do you put it, or is it dropped? Do the soldiers put it in the ground?
1: No, no, no. Uh, you drop from, from it.
0: drones. Uh, but, but is this this is agro nor- drones? Very yeah. massive agro drones, big,
3: big drones. Okay. Large.
0: And the idea is there are a lot of these anti-tank mines in stock, and uh, they need area weapons to take out infantry and so the anti-tank mine is fitted inside this casing filled with ball bearings. It's dropped typically from a crop duster drone which can handle more weight and it's set to detonate above the ground and take out as many Russian soldiers as possible.
2: Wow you can really do some damage with these DIY mechanisms it sounds, sounds
0: like. It's kind of incredible, and one of the guys I spoke to described it as kind of a barbarian endeavour, but a necessary one.
2: Can you tell me about some of the other factories and facilities that you visited?
0: Absolutely. So one of the big problems, as you can imagine, or difficulties is keeping the operation secret. And if you're producing a fairly small number of parts or pieces, and you're doing that at home, and you're careful to not let the word get out, that's one thing. But large numbers of these systems are needed, and uh, I traveled, was able to visit uh, a window factory about 45, 50 minutes from Kyiv. I'm in a car. We've just crossed the the Dnieper River in Kyiv, and I'm with a certain Vladimir who is driving, and uh, Andrei. They are taking me to an undisclosed location somewhere in the Kyiv area. Andre owns a window factory and he has been secretly uh, dedicating part of the production there to making drones. And they're churning out about 5,000 a month. The owner of the factory told me that if necessary, he can whip together a surge capacity of about 10,000 drones a month. Now, if you were doing that at home, pretty soon neighbors and other people would start to notice the large number of boxes coming in and out of the area, but he's got a window factory that's been producing (laughs) windows for a long time. And so that's not an issue. We are walking into the window factory. I have to switch off the GPS localization function on my phone, which I have done. Every single one of those drones is donated directly to the Ukrainian Armed Forces.
3: So these are the place for assembly of the drones. 10 to 12 people can assemble about 200 drones a day. Yeah, so one, one person is about 20 drones per day. Wow. This primitive. Not, it's not high tech. It's very primitive.
0: Today is a Saturday, and the, the factory is not running at full tilt. What this says about the will of the Ukrainian people to to defend their country really is extraordinary. Now, he's spending a lot of his money. Donors are providing money to help that operation continue. But it really is a testament to the force of will of the people to resist Russian aggression.
2: We heard earlier in the show about how drones can be interfered with or jammed. You know, are the DIY engineers working on that problem?
0: Yeah, the jamming is a problem that you hear pretty much all the engineers talking about. And in fact, the jamming is so fierce that the life expectancy of these drones is often one, two, three, four missions. They just eventually get knocked out of the sky. They can't communicate with the remote control system and, and they fall out of the sky. So there's a lot of effort to try and figure out ways to make the drones more survivable. Now, one of them is, I spoke with uh, the guy running a workshop at an undisclosed location in Ukraine, and he has a team of about 30 people working full-time making kamikaze drones for about $450 a piece. What is military secret? He can,
3: can't... Uh... Can't show. It's a secret design. Yes. Secret one.
0: And his engineers have fashioned essentially a signal repeater yeah. 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 system.
3: Okay, so it's a Ukrainian thing which invented in Ukraine. It's a walkie talkie. Oh, 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 it's for a secret radio connection okay. which doesn't get. Um, Suppressed by anti-radio... Uh, yeah, jamming. jamming. Not not getting jammed.
0: It's being used in Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, where the fighting has been intense. OK, but why is this so good? Why is it so special, what you have invented?
3: <laughs> because, like, it doesn't get jammed by the Russian uh, forces.
0: OK, let's take a the look engineers at it. The idea is and the, the, and the and signal repeater is placed a certain distance between the operator and the target, that intensifies the signal enough for these drones to do a better job, be more survivable, and travel farther and and, uh, strike the targets.
2: Now, Ben, everything you've talked about has involved either creating something from scratch or tweaking a consumer product that's already available. But I wonder, have any foreign manufacturers decided to get involved as well and tweaked their own equipment to be able to be used by the Ukrainian military Straight away,
0: yeah, that's an excellent question, and you would think that that would indeed be taking place. But uh, I've learned about this from Ivan Tolchinsky. He's the CEO of uh, an official drone manufacturer that makes civilian models called Atlas Aerospace. It's based in Riga, Latvia.
3: We know some of the customers have modification, but it's not happening like directly from our company. We know how they make it, but it's like a problem is the licensing. If you want to make like a drop system and you don't know what's going to be drawn for it, uh, you need to apply to the license, and it may make your drone like a military drone.
0: He essentially said that we've looked into that. We could make these systems and export these drones, but it would require probably a year of bureaucratic headaches getting the permits to export military equipment. You know,
3: because and it's going to be, become like a, like a weapon system.
0: And then once, even if we got that, Permission. Then we'd be a military exporter and that would make it much more difficult to sell civilian drones for search and rescue and that kind of clientele. And so it doesn't look like the commercial drone manufacturers are going to start elbowing in and producing this type of equipment instead of these workshops. So the workshops have really arisen to fill a need that the commercial manufacturers just aren't meeting.
2: Okay, so commercial manufacturers um, are unlikely to get in on this game. But what about Russians? Is there a DIY drone industry going on in Russia too?
0: Yes, absolutely. The Russians are catching on. The Russian workshops are starting to get going. The soldiers on the front are flying makeshift drones. Ukrainians We're pretty unanimous in saying that the quality, the technological sophistication of the Russian drones is not anywhere near where the Ukrainians are. So for now, Ukraine has the edge. But of course, we don't know how long that's going to last.
2: But at least on the Ukrainian side, it sounds like those DIY engineers aren't going to give up anytime soon, are they?
0: Yeah, and in fact, that's something that I think policy makers would be wise to keep in mind if if a political agreement were reached that essentially gives russia ukrainian land in exchange for a promise from putin to be nice from now on there's no guarantee that these workshops and the drone operators using them are going to go along with that so one way of looking at this network of workshops is that this is a potential foundation for an insurgency and policymakers should think about that when to, trying to decide when is the time to try and end the war.
2: Ben, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. Always a pleasure.
2: Don't forget you can read all of Ben's reporting in the current issue of The Economist. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can get a month for free by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Whether we're talking about modified civilian equipment or specifically designed military drones, these machines have been more visible than ever in the war in Ukraine. Coming up, our Ukraine correspondent will tell us how much difference drones have made in the war effort and how they're likely to change how wars are fought in the future. To understand how drones are changing warfare, I'm joined once again by The Economist's correspondent in Ukraine, Oliver Carroll. Oli, a decade or so ago, there were widespread fears around the use of drones in warfare. You know, these remote control machines were, you know, a different type of fighting wars from the air. Now, to what extent are those fears being realised in what you're seeing in Ukraine?
4: I mean, drones have been flying above war zones for more than a century. I mean, the Israelis then developed them as reconnaissance in the 70s. But what you're seeing now is in the context of contested airspace, current usage is evolving really fast. So we've never really had a situation where airspace has been so contested, where you have, on the one hand, Ukrainian drone makers, but on the other hand, state-of-the-art Russian electronic warfare methods. So it's a kind of cat-and-mouse game and a huge sort of R&D race, which we're seeing. In reality, we are seeing Ukraine getting drones through. We've seen that, which is, you know, remarkable. But what the major issue at the moment is down to the world economy. It's down to bottlenecks in production. Uh, The major problem at the moment is getting petrol engines. Electric engines are, are easy to get, but the petrol engines are the ones which give the long range. And all sides are facing these problems. So this is a sort of natural break to the major escalation, certainly in the short term. But once this war finishes, I think we'll see a major increase, both in drone production and in new ways of air defence.
2: Do you think that this development um, of, of drones, does it make conflicts more dangerous?
4: It certainly brings in a different aspect for generals to think about. In some ways, it makes it safer. This is the thing that Ukraine has been telling me, that they see Drones as a way to reduce their own casualties. If a drone can hover above a trench and understand where the Russian positions are, then that's far better than sending in a company of reconnaissance soldiers. So it really depends where. And in the same way as in some places, it's still the blood gore, rifle on rifle of World War One, But in other places, things are much more sophisticated and they're coming down to people pressing keyboards and fiddling with knobs in Moscow and in Kiev, sitting on their sofas. It's it's completely changed that aspect of things. Whether it makes war more dangerous or not, I think it's too early to tell.
2: Okay, finally, Oli, what's going to happen next in Ukraine? How important do you think drones are going to be in the expected counteroffensive in the east of the country?
4: Well, initially, they were hoping to use the technology on Starlink, which basically is is very difficult to penetrate because it's a different way of communication, it has a very narrow beam and a different frequency. But it seems that Starlink, in their wisdom, decided to stop them using that after what appeared to be a successful attempt on the Black Sea fleet earlier this year. The major battle now is how long Ukrainian air defence can hold out, whether whatever you, drones Russia is making or has in reserve, has the potential to make, are able to exhaust its defense capacities. But Ukraine underwent a massive reorganization of its army to introduce 60 new drone divisions and a new doctrine, which essentially focuses on drone warfare. There were a few hiccups along the way. But I think you can expect some kind of breakthrough. Exactly how, just with everything else on the counter we don't know. But Ukraine has certainly been surprising with its innovation throughout the war. And I wouldn't be surprised to see drones form a major part of some of the operations perhaps around Crimea. It, it's a dynamic process and Ukraine believes small increments. They can make a big difference in the finality of it. And if you were looking for somewhere where Ukraine could make that asymmetrical difference, as it did in the first few weeks of the war with its partisan and local uh, ground-up network-based resistance, then I think it's here. It's in the drone aspect of this counter-offensive.
2: Okay, Oli, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Our thanks also to Ulrika Franca, economists Ollie Carroll and Benjamin Sutherland. And of course, everyone we spoke to in Kyiv. And thank you for listening to Babbage. If you love the show, don't forget that there's just a few days left to apply to join the Babbage team as an assistant producer. Find out more in the show notes and good luck. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
5: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.